You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with an array of thinkers, from faith leaders to academics to artists, to explore deep questions of meaning, questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honoured to welcome to our show Pastor Tiago Ajais from the Advent Life Church in Santa Fe. Pastor Tiago, welcome. Thank you. It's a joy to be here. So what brought you to Santa Fe? And what do you do here? Um... Well, first of all, that was a beautiful introduction there. Nice music. Yes, it is. Well, that's pretty. I enjoyed that. Um, almost cried here for a because second. Because you're a musician. I you? am, yes. So, so why don't we start there? Sure. What does that mean for you to be a musician? Well, in Brazil, you know, back in the day when I was young and you're trying to process things, especially, you know, these profound life questions, I found that, you know, in writing things and, and expressing myself artistically was sort of a way to organize some thoughts or mm-hmm. rephrase things and ask different questions. And and I started that fairly young while I was in high school, writing simple little songs here and there. And then the people at the school listened to them and said, oh, that's that's nice. I said, oh, okay, fine, whatever. And, and, just, and then went to college, I continued writing and doing things. And by the time I was about to finish college in Brazil, which was seminary, I was studying to be a, a pastor, um, Somebody just came up to me and, and said, hey, why don't you just record an album with this? And then I did, wow. like sold while, iPods. While you were studying? Yeah, while I was studying. I didn't wow. have any money. So I sold like shoes and old jackets and an iPod, I think. And, and, and we just recorded the first album, my, me and my brother, who's a pastor here in Albuquerque now too. Um, and that was the beginning of it. But then we, I came to do graduate studies in the United States and Michigan, and I stayed there for eight years. And during that time, I think some of the best songs came out from that experience of you know being in the rigid winters of southwest michigan right, and right. and feeling alone and having new questions and new dilemmas being married for the you know and 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 figuring out that as well and and during that period i wrote a whole album um that and then recorded it in nashville tennessee huh? and in that process to put a long story short sony music in brazil sort of signed us and picked that album up uh, through many events that I'm not going to describe now, but are fascinating just to to look back and see how that happened. And that sort of put us in the map in Brazil, and now our songs are really well-received and and, and, but it's a joy to be in Santa Fe, though, and not, and so not touring why? and not doing that there and, 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 uh, and, and being here. Yeah. How do you go Brazil, um, you know, to Michigan, you said? Michigan, uh, yeah. How do you go Brazil, Michigan, Santa Fe? Well, yeah, Michigan was sort of like when I finished seminary in Brazil, which is like a bachelor's degree in theology there, you sort of begin ministry or serving and doing what you need to do. And I was 22 at the time. And I felt that my experience there wasn't – what can I say? I still had many questions, and I, I didn't feel ready at 22 to face a congregation and just start teaching them right. whatever truth from the right. Word of God. You know, I felt that I needed to live a little bit longer and figure some things out. But I was never the academic, um, which is fascinating. Um, so when I went to Andrews University in Michigan, I said, I'm just going to do a little master's here and then go back to Brazil and do what I need to do. But at Andrews, I sort of realized what academic life was truly all about, which is pursuing these questions and, 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 and trying to think as thoroughly as you can about, you know, these questions that we deal with every day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up, the two years that I planned to be there ended up being eight years. 
Um, and then I became a university teacher in Brazil for the last four years. So I taught theology and philosophy um, and was doing music as well, touring with my brother and, and doing that. So it, it ended up being very busy. I taught in the morning and at night. In the weekends, I used to do music. Right. Wasn't spending as much time as I wanted at home with my kids. I have a seven-year-old called Benjamin, three-year-old called Joanna. And, you know, I just had a mini existential crisis. And, you know, I don't want to be far from them at this time and everything else. So I started asking my wife, you know, what should we do in the future? What should happen? And in the midst of this, my brother who lives in Albuquerque said, hey, there's a church in Santa Fe that hasn't had a pastor for over a year. Mm. So I just turned to my wife and said, hey, you want to go to Santa Fe? And we visited here before. Right. We, we love the city. And she said, yes, please, now go wow. and send a resume. <laughs> right. And they replied the same day because, I mean, wow. they were truly in need of, of somebody to take care of the community. And, and in my life, I've always understood that, you know, there is no divine calling of an angel or like Yahweh appearing and saying to <laughs> He might have done it for others in the past, but I don't follow that for okay. myself. I truly believe these days that if there's a need somewhere, that's the true calling. Um, and since when I heard that they hadn't had a, a leader or, or a pastor or somebody to take care of them for over a year, that did it for me. And we just moved. Yeah. But how do we define the need? Because I guess one of my challenges, <clears throat> I, I totally understand what you're saying in sure. terms of the professional, personal, yeah. clergy yeah. crisis, yeah. Um, which is a real difficulty because we feel that we have to respond to every need. True. And there's the, the ego, the Superman, I can save everyone kind of the thing. The messianic yes, trauma there. Right, yeah. right, absolutely. Um, but for me, now we live in a globalized society. Yes. We are aware of so much more need in the world. How do we determine need I can respond to and need that I can't respond well, to? Well, that's a great question. I had a, I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day about this and you know, obviously with te technology, we end up knowing much more than a, a regular human being a hundred years ago would right. be aware of. Right. And that truly becomes overwhelming to clergy people or to human beings altogether. Because, I mean, you wake up in the morning, you have your own issues at, at right. home or at work, and then you turn on the news and you realize what's happening at the border and you, ha and you realize the things that are happening overseas. And Brazil, for instance, where I'm from, it's just chaos right now with right. the Amazon jungle being a mess and and things just going south and, and it's, it's, it's truly a problem. So you become even more overwhelmed with all these things. Um, so obviously at this stage, I'm not one to say, well, here's a 12 ways for you to organize the true <laughs> need. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, in reality, it's just being immersed in our community, isn't it? And, and just realizing that there's a need all around, beginning with our own family circle, beginning with our own faith communities. And just trying to tap into whatever is happening around us. So at this stage, I was just in the hallway talking with Andy, our good friend, about, you know, the situation of the penitentiary here in town and how they, they need more volunteers over there as well. And so I just like the mystery of, of the whole thing, of not being aware and then suddenly being faced with something that is happening in my community that I might have something to contribute to, not in the sense that I can right. solve all problems. But as clergy people, we do have access to people and we can influence them to tap into the true need that is, you know, around us all the time. So, yes, there's need beyond that we should need, be aware of. But I like to keep the, that half and half, that realization that, yes, there's need all around. But at the same time, there's a mystery that I don't know what's going on around me. I need to be sensitive to that as well. So I appreciate people from town that are helping El Paso and that are helping mm -hmm. situations at the border. And, and I do my heart is still connected to Brazil in many ways. But at the same time, I need to leave that open space to be aware of the things that are happening right. around as well. And that changes for everybody. I guess. Sure. Yeah. So so who is this community who you saw the need, the, the Advent Life Church? Who, well, 
Well, we're we're a Seventh Day Adventist church, which uh, normally it's it's fairly large in the United States. It began in the United States, um, and it has a large educational system around the world and health system around the world through the hospitals in California and Florida. So it's very well known by Oprah and all the others for their health contributions right. to the country and to the world. Um, we also have. ADRA, which is a relief agency that basically when there's any catastrophe in any place of the world, um, they're probably one of the first responders uh-huh. there alongside other organizations as well, nonprofit to help and to provide um, for those that are truly in need. So these, when I came to Santa Fe, I knew that there was a, an issue here because there were two congregations that had fought with each other 15 or 20 years ago and were not in good terms and had a lot of animosity and all these other things, which is an additional need that I discovered here right. as well. Right. Um, so it was. It was. So that's that's basically what what I found here. It's it's two Adventist churches that were in that situation. And from the time I got here, I started teaching them about you know who the God of the Bible truly is. It's a God who's deeply interested in meaningful relationships and in realizing that to to know Him is truly indirectly connected to how we understand and deal with each other. Um, I also spoke about this with Andy, and I think I told you that last night we even had a Bible study on Genesis 4, which is Cain and Abel, and it just fascinates me. Yesterday I didn't realize something that I should have realized before, which is there's this whole dialogue between God and Cain. There are two of them, but in the first one, he truly focuses on his relationship with his brother Abel. So he begins saying sin is crouching at the door. There's a life of selfishness here. There's a problem here that is crouching, and it will take over. But just look at your brother. You know, his desire is for you and and you will have, you know, this this relationship back. So it's just fascinating to right. me how the God of the Bible is always pointing to these relationships. And as we understand and 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 realize who this God is, we we end up at the end of the day finding his image in the face of the other, because obviously according to the Bible we're all created in the image of God. So I like that relationship that we you find that throughout the entire scripture. This idea that the more I get close to God, the more I, I come closer to people, which is sort of countercultural these days in a religious right. sort of setting. So, but then part of the establishment of relationship in the Bible, as I read it, is the establishment of covenant. Yeah. Um, the establishment of if we are to have a relationship, we need to have expectations of each other. Yes. And I know that's often read in a very judgmental way. And yeah. I can sympathize with those who say it's presented in such a way, in, certainly in, in aspects of the, the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. Um, but for me, um, is it possible to have relationship without having um, covenant, without having agreement? What, what do we need to set up an authentic relationship? Well, that's a, good, that's a great question. I think, well, then again, obviously the Bible begins with the idea of covenant, which is God establishing some basic principles as to which he will relate to humanity and to the world at large, because the covenant is always God, human beings, and nature or right. land, right? Yeah. Um, and these boundaries need to be set. But obviously now we live in a situation where we're not abiding by you know common ideals or common scriptures or right. any of these things. So we do find that as you progress throughout the Bible into the New Testament, which is obviously not your area there at Beit Temple, Temple Beit Shalom, Shalom. Yeah. Um, you do have... You know, this this emphasis on what was there all along, but is not written down. So basically the law is written down. You can you can you know look at it, you can pick it up, you can it has clear boundaries, the covenant with God and his people are clear. But as you move into 
into even within the Old Testament because you have ample evidence of that. I mean, the prophets said, you know, the the law will eventually be written in the human heart, right. which is where I'm driving at. The idea is that our, there are common and basic elements, which I normally call grace. There, there is grace and there is love all around. And once we, we become sensitive to that reality, we suddenly find the true basis for any meaningful relationship. Um, how we can phrase that and rephrase that, it varies. But I do believe that inside of us, because we do have the image of God within us, which does come with now after sin and brokenness, it comes with a broken and and not clear direct path as to how to live a meaningful life. But we do have grace and love and, and, and God, and, and he permeates all these things to, to give us this commonality in serving and in looking at need around us and in realizing that behind a smile and a face, there is a universe and a human being that mm. is carrying within him the image of God himself. So I think that that presents itself as a, a more elusive but just as meaningful basis for relationships. Yeah. That's a wonderful place for us to take a pause. You're listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom uh, and my guest this evening, Pastor Tiago Ahais from the Advent Life Church in Santa Fe. And we'll be back in a moment. You're back listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom in Santa Fe. My guest this evening, Pastor Tiago Heiss from the Advent Life Church. And we've been having a really interesting discussion so far about relationship and expectation and covenant. Um, and I, I was listening to some of the words you were using before we took our break about sin and grace and things like that. And it, it made me think about the differing language that we use when we approach scripture, sure. when we approach religion, these presuppositions that we have. Yes. Um, and you've, wrote, you've written about um, the, the presuppositions yeah. that we have when approaching the Bible. So can you share some thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, when I got to, to graduate school, I, I started reading. Um, the first area that truly fascinated me was the Hebrew Bible, um, just these ideas that we've been discussing We've been slaughtering these ideas because of <laughs> such a short time. But, sure. I mean, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I took a class on the history of the interpretation of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. It just blew my mind. And then I went to another class, which was, you know, the transforming power of the Hebrew scriptures. And then just I just said, this is where I'm going to be forever. But then I took a philosophy class the same semester. And I was like, oh, <laughs> maybe I should. And then I tried to put the two things together. Right. So as I continue digging, you know, how can we make sense of these words today? How can we bridge the meaning of these words and find a relation to life and to uh, and how to observe reality, I realized that the starting point for any approach to the Hebrew Bible is hermeneutics, which is truly, you know, what happens when we're reading the the Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures, what or any other text. What, what what's the mental process? What what's right. at stake? And obviously, what we all know or should know is that you know we in we. How can I say this in English? Because I'm thinking in Portuguese now. <laughs> how, how do we infer? That's the word. That we constantly infer meaning and concepts into words that we're reading. And I tell right. that to the members all the time. I mean, so let me give you an example. Uh, when you read Genesis 3, for instance, it begins saying that, you know, that there was a, a serpent that was more cunning than all the animals. And then I asked the, the, the members, you know, who is the serpent? You know, what, what, what is this? Everybody just raised their hand. Oh, it's the devil and everything else. And I said, well, where is that? You know, how right. did you get there? So this right. is just a simple example for us to know, to show how it's very easy just to infer information into the biblical text. Obviously, later in the Bible, we have developments on who that being or what that is and right. what the meaning of that is. 
But as we're reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we have no introduction to that, to that, to that animal or to that concept or what's right. going on over there. In other words, there's a lot happening in our minds as we're reading text and inferring it upon words, our own conceptions and our own ideas. So, so my doctoral dissertation ended up being, you know, the Greek philosophical presuppositions that influence our reading of the Hebrew Bible and specifically in the book of Exodus. And it's just fascinating how, how much this Greek philosophical mindset has been immersed in basically everything that has been written in the Old Testament, sort of reshaping and reorganizing concepts that are truly foreign to the right. to the Hebrew reality and pointing them to a whole different conceptual world that it's that is truly not there. So that always fascinated me how to approach the Bible and with all the the stuff that we bring into the reading and that's sort of what I did in graduate school there. The uh, it's a fascinating example that you give um, of the the serpent being cunning. Because um, I'm convinced there's humor in the Bible. Oh, sure. And when we talk about that with other people, sometimes people are very open to that. Uh, and I believe the serpent being yeah. cunning is actually an example of that, uh, of that humor, the first example of humor. Sure. Arum um, being also The play with naked. nakedness. Yes, right. Arumim. Yeah. I, I, that's got to be a joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if that's a joke, that says a totally different a reading of what scripture is yeah. when Bilam has a donkey that starts talking to yes. him. I mean, the, the, just the idea of a talking snake yeah. um, and that the people go, well, the Bible's ridiculous because it's got yeah. talking snakes. Things yeah. like that don't happen. And I think, but you're reading that as a scientist almost, yeah. right? The world around us doesn't see this. But but what is the Bible trying to convey in and of itself? Which is the real question, yeah. Right. W- what's the deal there, yeah. But is it possible because maybe I read humor into that text specifically because I I need the the Bible to be a particular way for me. Sure. Um, the you know Shakespeare says the devil can cite scripture for his own yes. reasons. So we can all read it in our own way. Well, this is history. Right. But then that, is there a way to say <laughs> that this is what the text actually meant? No. That's the thing. Right. As soon as we're dealing with 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 words in culture and I mean that's it. It's it's done. So God is there is a lot of humor in this idea of revelation and, and having a written record of things. Because, I mean, if God wanted to convey, you know, and not have a struggle with understanding things, he would have just, you know, written, I know, physical formulas and revealed that to people. So you f- you'll figure out, you know, quantum mechanics and all right. this. And then you'll know. But he doesn't. He gives us stories. He gives us riddles. He gives us, you know, mystery. He gives us, you know, can you, I mean, it just fascinates me. When you open up the Bible, it begins with, you know, narrative. It begins with mm. truly a story. Where... And then you have that in the New Testament as well with Jesus telling parables all over the place. Why? Because it's much more interesting and fascinating to convey an image and, and allow the human receptor to find ways in which he can see himself into the story, which is truly meaningful. So my conclusion in my dissertation is, no, this is not an exercise to come with the final understanding of what the biblical text is. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be aware of the things that we are importing into the text. That doesn't mean it's not meaningful to do that. Right. It just raises the question— Am I guiding the reading and is that the true nature of biblical reading? Or am I open to the possibility that there is something to be conveyed and for me to wrap my head and my life around that? So I like the second just because I understand God to be not like me right. and, not, and to be a counterpoint, which I think right. today in, in secular or religious consumer America, you know, where churches and synagogues are sort of in a supermarket of religion and you have to tap into all that reality. God 
in the end, as Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite writers, writes, it's truly an extrapolation of who we are. So in other words, he agrees with us. He votes according to what we believe, uh-huh. you know, the, the candidate that he has. He truly, you know, everything that God is is an extrapolation of what we hide in our own, you know, life and desires and our passions and everything else. And then Eugene Peterson says, and then we hire a pastor or a rabbi to uh-huh. sort of manage the affairs <laughs> between the extrapolated image of ourselves and us. And I just like to keep that understanding that the God of the Bible truly is a counterpoint. He is not the one who's going to come and say, oh, yes, of course, this is. And I love how Kierkegaard puts um, the story of David and in, in the prophet after he kills Bathsheba's husband, right. you know, Uriah. And then he comes into that place where he's chilling in the, pa- in the palace. And the prophet comes and says, tells him the little story of the sheep and mm-hmm. all, all these other things that I'm, I hope the, the, the listener is aware of, that little story. And Kierkegaard in the book for self-examination, he has a thorough and, and hilarious analysis of that story. He writes that David, you know, might have been sitting down, you know, looking at this prophet, sharing with him the literary mastermind of Israel, you know, story. And then he starts making, you know, critical notes on the story. Maybe right. you should explore, you know, this character a little bit more because he thinks that the story is for him to analyze and criticize because obviously the God, you know, he believes in is... Is, agrees with him in all things, right. which is sort of the Saul right. complex as well. But then the prophet comes to him and says, no, you are the man. Mm-hmm. And, and suddenly Kierkegaard makes the point that the story is not for us. The story is about us. And the God of the Bible is, many times is not in agreement with you. He truly wants to challenge you and, and be that counterpoint that is so necessary in society today. But then how can we find that? You're taking a very postmodern position of there is no text in and of itself. There is only a text with a reader, um, which well, I totally respect. That is, yeah. Right. I, I, I totally respect that. That's, uh, I'm deeply sympathetic to yeah. that. But then how can we speak meaningfully of, some, of that text challenging us yes. when in and of itself we're already reading ourselves into the text? That's the openness that I need to leave. And that's what I came to my conclusion after I thought, you know, eight years about this. I said, <laughs> you know what? Yes, there's a text and there's a reader. Yes, Rabbi Neil is going to read it different than me. But I do truly believe that in any reading, we need to leave that open space. If the Bible truly, if we have that principle, there's one irrevocable principle that I have, and you might not have, and others might not have, that in the Bible, we truly might have something that is different than other books and other literature. And I have that principle within me. And we have other, even secular authors talking about this. Auerbach in the book Mimesis begins this whole treatise on Western depictions of reality by affirming that, you know, the Hebrew writers are, are portraying something radically different than everything else. And he compares it to Homer and, every, you know, and other writers. And I think this is a truly profound point. There is something there that doesn't make Hebrew writers or Christian writers better than anybody else, but we truly believe that there's something there, that there is a revelation from God there. That doesn't mean there's no other revelations of God outside, but that there is something there. So if that is so, then I'll leave that open space to be, com- to be open to the counterpoint, as David was, to be in a mindset that doesn't close itself to the idea that it's just me and the text, but that there is a possibility that there is something transcendent here, that there is something that breaks the cultural, the, you know, and, and I think 
the history of religion shows that that's true. In other words, you have people who are reading Genesis chapter 4 in a little church in Santa Fe in 2019. In other words, right. there might be something there right. that we don't find anywhere else. So that's sort of my point in society, in literature, and sort of how I, I try to deal with these profound questions. I'm aware that we've only got a few minutes left, but I want to open up a really big question and do so quickly. <laughs> you spoke at the beginning of our conversation about uh, about finding God in the relationship with the other. Yeah. And then you're talking about revelation. Yes. Um, which is normally seen as something from on high. Yes. You, know, you said God gave us riddles and things for us to yes. think about. How how do we hold, how, how can we know or say anything meaningful about God? Yes. If God is uh, only to be encountered in the relationship, which is not something you can define, but you can experience. Yeah. And if uh, every reading of the text is our own reading of the text, how can we say anything, I guess, objective of God? Yeah. Is, is anything that we say of God my experience of God? Well, here is where nuances kick in. I do believe that every reading is our own reading. But at the same time, like I said, I do believe that there is a slight possibility that if I leave that open space to be confronted by something that is transcendent, and when I say transcendent, I don't mean it in the Greek way because that would be another presupposition right. that God is out there, right, right. doesn't immerse himself in history. Right. So I do believe that God immerses himself in history. He does speak through the biblical text as he manifests who he is through what has been created, and the entire book of Psalms points us to that direction, how we can have traces glimpses of who God is through what we right. have around us in reality. Right. So if that is true, and if I can have that sense and you can have that sense in England as a rabbi, and, and we can come to the same place by leaving that openness there, then I do something truly meaningful can take place. And as that takes place, we end up becoming more sensitive to the things that truly God is interested in, which is people. So how can I know and find the image of God in the face of the other if I had not had that reading Right. That somebody in Eastern Europe could also have come to that same place if that space was open to the possibility that, yes, this is my reading, but what if something breaks through this openness, this existential openness before the text that points us to a common area where we can find God and find each other in the process? But is God – I'm still – I'm trying to work through the nuances of what you're saying. I, I feel like a minnow in a spiritual stream. Um, but is God still separate from us? Um, is God a being in and of God's self? Well, these are profound questions that I'm sure I'm looking I at the clock. We can't answer in two, two minutes. But we can all, always discuss them. I mean if I go by the biblical text. So I begin with right. Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And what I have there, and if I take that seriously, is that there was nothing and there was God. In other words, no, God is not me. No, God is not the text. I disagree with that, inter with that oh, reading. Even. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So tell it's me. The, well, because it says the earth was tohu vavohu. For from, from us and void, tohu vavohu. Yeah. Yes, but um, pre-existing. Sure, there was something there. Right, right. Yeah. Not that there was nothing and then there was something. Well, to, I agree with that. But to make that God, that's different. Okay. To make that jump, that's different. And I don't make that jump. I, I just read that text and I'm right there with you. There were, there were things before creation. No, I do not believe that there was air. And then somebody, because right. then we would have problems with reading. Well, right. where, did, where was this water that the spirit or the wind is hovering over? Right. What is this deep shachon? All, all these other things that are happening over there. What is that? 
Well, that just means that there's more to the story than we actually know. And this is the same explanation as to the serpent or this being or this concept in Genesis 3, which is where did that come from? Well, there's more to the story that we don't realize. We We just pick it up from this particular point in reality. But I do see a clear distinction in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 between God and who he is and in a radical relationship with created things in nature and human beings. There is clearly much more. <laughs> and we, I told you we would no, have no, more to talk about. And so, you know, I really, I really genuinely want to thank you for, for coming on to our show uh, and hope that you can come back oh, and, yeah. and explore much more with us. I, I feel like we're just opening up uh, a really interesting conversation. So It's always a joy to speak with you, Rabbi Neil, and, and I hope all the listeners got something from all, all, all our I'm joyous sure, discussion. I'm here. sure, certainly. Pastor Tiago from uh, the Advent Life Church here in Santa Fe, thank you so much for being here thank this you. evening. You've been listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching. <laughs>